Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. With me today is crew member Jira. What ho, fair lady. (laughs) And uh, our special guest, Brooke. Greetings, humans. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards. From thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries, visit www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp. Looking for podcast merch? Check out our Tee Public store. There are so many designs with new ones being added all the time and on so much more than just t-shirts. Find it at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp. Great. So, Brooke, would you like to give us a, a, a tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your history of Star Trek? Well, I would love to tell people about my history with Star Trek, but it starts <laughs> decades ago. I was a geek as a teenager. My first date was going to see Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> Ooh. One of the times that I knew my dad loved me was when he brought home a stack of Star Trek novels and a signed, personalized autograph photo from Gates McFadden. Uh. And I knew my dad loved me because Mm -hmm. he he didn't understand Star Trek. And as far as what I've done recently, I, if you come to the Star Trek convention or the convention that's held in Vegas every year... I work at the cosplay repair booth there at Garrick's and um, help fix people's broken costumes, their broken dreams. And so you can, <laughs> if, if you come to the, the convention there, you can always come by the repair booth. I will be there and I would love to say hi to people there and have done uh, several panels at that convention involving costuming because by profession, I'm a costumer and I work in theater a lot. And then I've also done the panels there on Shakespeare and Star Trek, which is, I think, why I was invited to participate today, <laughs> and which is just happy for me. Absolutely. And I have to say, I love the idea of cosplay repair, because when you're at a con and you don't have access to all of your stuff at home that you use to make your costume and stuff, how nice is it that you can find a booth and go up and, and say, hey, I need glue? You know, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's I love that is the reason I go to the convention because I've been there for I don't know, 10 years, maybe longer now. And for me, being able to go and help people and actually provide that service really means a lot because it does people work put so much heart into what they build. And then if it breaks, it's just oh, and we get to fix it. And I, I love that. That's awesome. Well, you are absolutely correct that one reason why we thought of you is because you have been on some panels on, about Shakespeare, specifically with our crew member, Grace. So we thought, who better to have on as a guest than Brooke? And uh, yeah, so our topic today is Shakespeare and Trek. And I got to tell you all, when we were sitting down to like break down this episode, I started going, oh, wow. Oh, my. This is, <laughs> this is a serious topic. There is a lot to go over. And so just a caveat, as always, trust me, we did not go out of our way to not talk about whatever special Star Trek uh, Shakespeare reference that you personally love. So can't get to everything, 
But we would love to hear from you all about anything that we missed uh, in our comments. Tell us what piece of Star Trek that references Shakespeare really hit home for you and why you liked it, because we always love to hear about that. So essentially, we when we started thinking about this topic, we started thinking about kind of broader themes that we could talk about that then we could kind of break down into specific examples. And one of the first things I thought of right off the bat is... One, there's kind of two ways that I feel like Star Trek is influenced by Shakespeare. And one of them is purely references, you know, quoting it, making the the title of the episode a, a, a Shakespeare quote, you know, all of those things are like direct references. But one thing that they also do that I think is interesting is they kind of show Shakespearean influence. So it's not so much that they're necessarily directly referencing Shakespeare, but we're seeing Shakespearean tropes and archetypes kind of play out within Star Trek. And I find that sort of thing fascinating. And when I started thinking about that, the first one that came to my mind is the kind of Shakespearean character trope of like the jester or the fool. And immediately I thought, well... Q is Puck. Like, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, I think that's one of the first things that's going to come to most people's minds is Q as, well, kind of like like Puck or Ariel, like the fairy type of, of fool. I think it's really interesting to think of, say, the Ferengis as fools as well. Like, so in Shakespeare, the fool, there's, there's the clowns and then there's, there's these fools that are, can be clowns. They can be funny, but they can also be like the people that hold up the mirror and show, you know, speak truth to power kinds of stuff and be a foil for the main characters and help guide them. Sometimes it's humorous and sometimes it's not. I think of like the fool and Lear. So the Ferengis actually really kind of fit that role, especially like Quark in Deep Space Nine. Mm. He's a clown character, and so's Rom. He's a clown character. But the Ferengi point of view helps us to understand humanity a little bit better. Yeah. Like it, it just, just as an example, the first thing that just occurred to me when you said that is the one where in, in the cards where Nog is saying to Jake, kind of, you know, your human economic system seems to make no sense. And that, that like you keep saying that you don't need money, but you certainly need to seem to need my money. <laughs> so like they can say those things and point out the things also about the inconsistencies in Star Trek as a series in a kind of meta way that like our heroes can't really do. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I've always liked about DS9 in general, and the Ferengi and even the Cardassians with Garrick too, is DS9 is one of the few series and one of the earliest series to actually unpack and take a look at the Federation itself and Starfleet itself and kind of question whether it's this all-encompassing good that we're supposed to think it is. Because in TNG and TOS, it's very clear that the Federation is an ultimate good, right? It's good then when they come and they are the moral arbiters, right? Even if it's not explicitly stated, that's just kind of the the inference of the show. It's underlying everything that they do. And then we get DS9, and we have characters, especially non-human characters and non-Federation characters that come up and they're like, "Eh, actually, have you thought about this? And I think you're absolutely right. Quark is a good example of that. Garrick, to me, is also an example of that. I think of... Quark and Garrick's famous root beer scene, 
Like, that's the first thing. The second you were like, and the Ferengi, I was like, oh my gosh, you're totally right. And that's what I feel like that rub your scene is. I guess the thing that I think like Q and Trelane, they fulfill kind of that function in terms of commenting on humanity, but they also have more power than the characters they're dealing with. So there's a bit of a way that they also maybe cross into the same maybe like a different type of category of Shakespeare archetype, which are, you know, kind of more supernatural influences. And I'm thinking like the witches in Macbeth. And and, uh, we also like, when you look at that category, also have like the prophets as filling a similar role to that, where you have this, like you come in and you comment as well as I'm going to say the witches in cat's paw who are clearly Macbeth influenced. (laughs) Um, So you, you have some of these like kind of more uh, supernatural trending towards omnipotent figures that can provide commentary and challenge the characters sometimes to, you know, potentially like, can you actually break from your destiny? Um, And I feel like that's a theme that we see a lot with Q is that idea of like passing a test. Well, I mean, the very first time we see Q, he's doing that. Mm -hmm. He's, he's asking, he's testing humanity and he's using Picard as the avatar of humanity and putting him to the test, so to speak, and making him kind of answer for humanity and whether or not they've grown and forcing him to defend humanity. Yeah. And I was also thinking along the lines, Q's character arc going into Picard season two and at the end of Picard season two. So I don't know if spoiler alert is necessary here. I wonder if Q goes from being like a puck and a mischievous kind of a character to being more like Prospero. Mm. Mm. That makes sense to me. I think like a lot of the academic literature I read and even some of the just non-academic commentary draws a lot of parallels between different parts of Star Trek and The Tempest because there are just generally, you know, a voyage with a an ambiguous ending, the stranger in a strange land, like lots of same uh, similar dynamics to that. So yeah, I mean, and I certainly feel like Q in season two looks like he could be a Prospero. <laughs> Science fiction in general helps us see ourselves by taking us just a few steps away from reality and then holding up a mirror. And I think Shakespeare does exactly that same thing. And I think that's why there's such a resonance between Star Trek and Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I think you're completely right. And and like building on that, um, that kind of leads into something else I wanted to talk about when it comes to just the sheer amount of Shakespeare and Star Trek. I started to think about how, just in general, I feel like Shakespeare is one of those kinds of writers that writers like and mm-hmm. writers study. So then you kind of see them use that as a template for a lot of stories that they want to tell. And I think that that's true of a lot of different writers in, in TV and like all media. But I think that's It's not just that resonance you were speaking of, Brooke, because I do think that that's really relevant. But I think it's also just if you're a quote unquote educated writer, you've probably studied Shakespeare. And it makes sense to me that it would like start to show up in your own writing. And, you know, if we're going all the way back to TOS, Elan of Troyes is essentially science fiction (laughs) taming of the shrew, right? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> it's uh it's not great. Uh it doesn't 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 hold up super well. But yeah, it's um I mean certainly Elan is a a woman who needs taming. She's kind of like a spoiled brat, um, and that's how it's portrayed. Well, except when you see her first, not not when she shows up on the transporter pad, but later on when she's explaining why she doesn't want to get married. Yeah. My sympathies are 100% oh, with Oh, totally. Her. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, like in, if you, that's partly why I don't think it works well today is because Kirk doesn't seem to really sympathize with her and, uh, you know, actually slaps her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course she doesn't want to be forced to get married, but the way that it's portrayed is that she's spoiled and that she um, is using her emotions um, and literally her tears that literally manipulate men. So I actually saw a blog article that also said like maybe there's also a bit of Antony and Cleopatra where she's a bit like Cleopatra like wielding her powerful sexuality as well as just like she has kind of Cleopatra braids going on. But yeah that's a way where it's like maybe you're borrowing some pieces of Shakespeare that I know have some people have tried to reinterpret in a more modern feminist way, but they did not really go there with that. Look, I'll just say that 10 Things I Hate About You is the superior taming of the shrew adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. There's a mythical, uh, I don't know if it's mythical, but there were sequels to Taming of the Shrew that were performed the tamer tamed that were kind of like this flip of getting Petruchio tamed. And I can't remember if they were popular or not, or, but it was a, it was kind of like the part two of of taming of the shoe. And this was, you know, back in the day. And I see a little bit of that in Elan of Troyes where she uses her sexuality to tame Kirk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, kind of interesting but also mostly that episode is one huge eye roll for me (laughs) (laughs) well i mean you were talking about her entrance in the transporter i that always makes me laugh the the, like the slow pan and the like music (laughs) yeah it's like oh she is sexy (laughs) and the literal placemats that were used for the costumes on her guards (laughs) 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 Ah, i love tos costuming I love it. Like they they really made a lot of things very iconically. <laughs> Not necessarily good, but iconic. Iconic, yes. Um one of the other archetypes I think we see a lot and I I mean this is this is another thing where we're talking about yeah, this is in Star Trek, but this is across all media. That one that I see commonly is the star-crossed lovers trope, and the first one I thought of when I was thinking about this is Riker and Soren and they're just kind of doomed lovers type thing. And then also this, this like Romeo and Juliet esque of, you know, societies that don't agree with each other and can't come together. Um, it's not a one-on-one analogy, but that was what I thought of when I was thinking of like common plot lines that we see in, in Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, back to Brooke's point about, there, you know, so we have one of the functions or or the reasons it's it's used is to hold a mirror to humanity. There's also the point, Andy, that you said are the writers are just familiar with it. There's also the point that the audience is um, assumed mm. to be a largely white Western American, mostly audience, and maybe they're not familiar with like Coriolanus, and they probably can't quote extensively from. Titus Andronicus or Pericles, Prince of Tyre, but they know the rough arc of Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet 
and Macbeth from high school because we all had to do it in high school. Plus, it's just also reinforced everywhere around us in our other pop culture. So you have in like Darmok, Troy uses as an analogy, it's like saying Juliet on her balcony, because like that is such a uniform universal image that the audience knows that they'll understand what that means as a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think far more people are familiar with the outlines of Shakespeare, just like just like you said, Jara, uh, that we all have a general idea that Hamlet's supposed to be in black and he's sad. And And he has mummy issues. (laughs) Yes, and he has mommy issues. Is is that it? It can be a sh- like like you said a shortcut to refer to other things and give us some context. I, I think sometimes it's used just to sound smarter than it yes. actually is. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that maybe is is a lot of the time. But most of us don't know. Most of us can't quote Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and I have spent tons of time memorizing Shakespeare because I've performed it and I still just don't quote it like that. You know, it's unless I'm actually actively in a play, nobody quotes Shakespeare. I, I think that like the end of Menage Troy, when Picard is quoting all of those sonnets and everything like that, it's hilarious. Who in real life actually memorizes poetry like that? <laughs> But it gives us a context for understanding what's going on. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up that sonnet performance because it it is my prime example for another thing I want to talk about, which which is one thing that I love about Shakespeare in general is that his writing is so layered and nuanced that you can basically change the meaning through performance. And it's one reason why as plays, they've stood up so well throughout time is because people are forever reimagining them and like playing with what did he actually mean here? Can, can we, you know, show it a different way? And I think that's such a good example of that, of performance changing the meaning because the sonnet he's quoting is romantic, but he's turned it into like a farcical comedic performance. So the meaning changes based on Patrick Stewart's excellent Shakespearean performance of it. And I, I really, I really love it. And that is definitely one, I think one of the, the moments that most people think of when they think of Shakespeare in Star Trek. And we got that when we reached out to our listeners and asked them what is their favorite. Um, Emily on Facebook said, Picard saving Luxwana and Menage a Troy by quoting Shakespeare is a great scene in an otherwise not so great episode. And I think that she's absolutely spot on there. It's so fun. I love it. It's so funny. It just really shows what you can do when you have like a Shakespearean trained actor, like having the time of his freaking life. Yeah. I think another thing that people think of in uh, that, not just Trekkies, uh, they'll think of Star Trek six, the, the Klingon, quoting Shakespeare all of the time. And when they're Mm -hmm. having that dinner and they're like, you haven't experienced Shakespeare until you've heard (laughs) him in the original Klingon. Yeah. I totally want to come back to the Klingon piece, but I I don't want to forget just one, one thing coming out of that thought about, you know, not, everyone just knows how to quote Shakespeare in their day to day or no, or generally quotes Shakespeare. And I, I believe I have raised on the podcast before that 
also not everyone knows how to quote Latin and sing Gilbert and Sullivan, but apparently they do in at least TNG era federation. And Morse code. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted to make the point that I did a bit of a deep dive down an academic internet rabbit hole of uh, scholarly essays on Shakespeare and Star Trek. And a common point that was raised, which was stated really well by Emily Hegarty, is about how Shakespeare is used in like a way that basically reinforces the kind of classic Western canon and particularly the kind of 19th century humanist thinkers that were kind of held up as like great individuals. And she says that it's actually contrary in a way to like how Shakespeare was originally as like a populist form of entertainment um, says that the Shakespeare of the next generation is not the Renaissance writer of crowd pleasing plays that have entertained for centuries. It is the archetypal genius of the cultural elite. His plays are not staged entertainments for the enjoyment of the starship crew. They are private moral lessons to be pondered in the isolation of the holodeck. This is not the Shakespeare of ubiquitous, inexpensive, universally translated paperback popularity. Picard's Shakespeare is the transcendental author of the antique book in the museum quality glass case, which lacks only a do not touch sign to further protect Shakespeare as a static and rigid cultural commodity. So I enjoy that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny that like Picard quotes Shakespeare so often and he rarely quotes the naughty bits. Uh, because yep, Shakespeare is very crass. Yeah. And, and then he definitely does not lean into that side of Shakespeare. Well, and I, my opinion is that Star Trek is a secular humanist story. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare and other Renaissance and Enlightenment authors are the version of the Bible for secular mm-hmm. humanism. And so it kind of makes sense that secular humanists would refer a lot back to this common shared text Yes, it comes from England. Yes, it comes from a white. Well, we know he was white. I don't know if he was cis, you know, male we, his or his sexuality. We don't know that either. But when you experience Shakespeare by performing or watching one of the shows, you experience what it is like to be a human. Almost no matter where you come from, there are troops that take Shakespeare to Africa, to prisons, all over the world, translate him into other languages, and it still plays so well, and it is still such a profound experience for at least the performers. I hope for the audiences as well. And so I think that Emily Hegarty's point there, I think it's very well taken. I, I also think that there's it's, it, it's because it is a, a, quote, sacred text for secular humanists. Mm-hmm. And honestly, one of my pet peeves is when people are performing Shakespeare and they forget that it is for the masses. It's funny. It's I, I, I am always trepidatious. Is that a good word? I always have some nervousness <laughs> going into a live performance of a tragedy because I am so worried that the actors are going to be tragic instead of just <laughs> doing the play and finding all of the fun stuff and remembering that it's about entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I think that what she's saying is more just we don't see that way that people are always contesting and transforming the source material. So people find these universal themes in it, but different ways of coming at them. And in TNG, especially, we seem to see when we see like things performed, I mean, it's either just things are quoted, but generally 
it seems like you would imagine a like stereotypical presentation of that play. Yeah. Oh, the conscience of the king from the original series. Oh yeah, it that's a good so, example. So stereotypically sixties mm-hmm. presentation of a play. It it's disgusting to me, honestly. Yeah. So like <laughs> it, it kind of makes it seem like so another uh, scholar I read, Katrina Boyd, wrote like basically the. TNG actually presents culture as less problematic than it has been in recent years. The overall impression is that high culture won out over low and mass culture. The canon is intact and cultural artifacts give a neutral, timeless, unproblematic representation of what it means to be human. So we miss that kind of like debate and discussion and like reimagining things as a project that involves a community. I think the universality of Shakespeare is really apparent. I do think that it 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 does like have an overall impact on just humanity, but I do think that the repeated use of Shakespeare in especially TNG and TOS kind of reinforces something that Star Trek is often guilty of, which is basically presenting a kind of narrow lens of you know, human culture. It's overwhelmingly white. It's overwhelmingly from Western, quote unquote, Western civilization. It's overwhelmingly from men. And so I think that's interesting because when we're coming at it through science fiction lens, it's like this is, it, it makes it seem, whether they meant to do this or not, it makes it seem like this becomes the dominant human culture that survives and that you know, is is considered quote unquote human and it's super focused on these handful of authors, handful of Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that has everything to do with the fact that it's in the public domain and yeah. the writers could use it without having to pay anybody for it. Yeah, I think that's that's probably right, too, because think about how many times they have quote unquote parties and yet they're listening to like classical music from like the <laughs> 1800s. It was actually really nice when I, I remember watching Discovery and they finally had like actual music. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Discovery. Because I personally love classical music. Do not get me wrong. I I truly do love it. But it just didn't, it just doesn't feel accurate. It's not as guttural as, as a good um, hip hop beat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks for uh, humoring my random academic Star Trek Shakespeare deep dive thoughts. And I don't necessarily... I think there's some different takes and uh, I'm still weighing up how I personally feel about it all. But I like that people are generally questioning like kind of deeper trends and things like that. But if do you mind if I just get back to the Romeo and Juliet discussion for a second? Oh, let's do it. I wanted to raise Trip into Paul as an example of the star-crossed lovers trope. Um, and at one point, Trip even says something like, Romeo and Juliet would have had better luck than us um, at a point where their relationship isn't doing well. And I think that that is a really good example of that because it's it's not just like two people who can't really be together, but like their societies don't support them being together. So she has all these Vulcan duties that... Um, make it harder for her to be with him 
And then not so much for him in terms of like his family, but there's these human extremists that don't want to see interbreeding. So I like the fact that there's those dynamics in it as well as just their interpersonal dynamics. Thank you, Jara. Did you want to go back to talking about the Klingons? Because I do think that Klingons in Shakespeare is a really fun, cool kind of, I I don't even know, world building (laughs) for Klingons that I truly enjoy. And I think the reason that I, I love it so much is I think there's just a really cool juxtaposition because it's like, yeah, Klingons, rawr, they like blood wine and they like fighting and rah rah they're warriors but they also love Shakespeare and if we're talking about like uh folks that actually understand like the populist mm-hmm. <laughs> versions of Shakespeare it's the Klingons and 100% <laughs> that's I I find it extremely charming more Klingon Shakespearean scholars please they're and they're their costumes are essentially versions of doublets. Like, they dress like Elizabethans. I love it. A good-fitting doublet just makes my heart skip a beat. <laughs> yeah. Klingons, Klingons and Shakespeare, they do seem to fit together at more than just the violence. I think one of the, the things about it, though, is the Elizabethan culture was more violent than ours. And so I think it does match in with the Klingon's idea of honor and what that means. There's, there is a resonance there, which I, I am not a Klingon fan. Not, not, not until Discovery, actually, was I ever a Klingon fan. I just like, oh, they resonate with Shakespeare. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and in Discovery, their costumes are very Shakespearean at first. Oh yeah, those. Uh, I mean, well, they look Elizabethan. Maybe is more accurate. Yeah, they they're they're very Elizabethan mm-hmm. in their aesthetics. Well, I mean, if it, depending on which plays you read, Shakespeare can be incredibly violent, and it's also about passion mm-hmm. and like really strong feeling. And one thing I like about the Klingons is they're not going to censor themselves. They're going to feel whatever feeling they have to the utmost. And I think that's probably why they like Shakespeare. And I mean, uh, Star Trek VI always comes out uh, up when we talk about Shakespeare and Star Trek, mainly because of Christopher Plummer mm-hmm. <laughs> and General Chang just absolutely being a Shakespearean fanboy and delivering all these like ponderous Shakespearean lines as a Klingon with an eye patch stapled to his face. It couldn't, it can't get better than that. That's, that's the height of Shakespearean performance. I mean, they should, every play from now on, they should have a character with an eye patch stapled to their face. <laughs> While, while delivering uh, to be or not to be. Yes. <laughs> well, asking existential questions. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Do, what, do you think that the Klingons have like a least popular, what would be the least popular Shakespeare play for Klingons? Midsummer's Night's Dream. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking like Love's Labor's Lost. <laughs> At least there's like fighting in Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> Well, and the, the Klingons are very uh, passionate and romantic. They, yeah. they would they would put something on it that I think would make it work for them. <laughs> I just feel like they'd need something in there that was, yeah, a bit more dramatic. Anyone that has like a duel is probably safe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I was starting to think that maybe the ones that are basically just farcical misunderstandings with everybody talking around each other and not saying what they mean. Oh, yeah. Like comedy of errors. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that yeah. might be. That might they be. would just be like, these. they have no honor. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you mean. <laughs> How dare you pretend to be someone you are not. <laughs> the Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Why are these wives so merry? <laughs> <laughs> Except which chancellor was it that's, that is like a very serious Falstaff? Um... Oh, I can't remember his name. Was it the Chancellor in Star Trek VI, who's Gorkhan? No, uh-uh, no. Oh, anyway, I, oh I, I be- can... the one before Gowron? Yeah, the one before Gowron. Oh. Um, oh, what was his name? Because I'm imagining him playing Falstaff and it's not going well. <laughs> we had um, a couple of listeners comment on the Klingons, and, and specifically Star Trek VI, and we got a recommendation from listener at FFN underscore BBQ, um, who recommends Christopher Plummer in the intro to the game Klingon Academy. Yep, I watched it. It's pretty good. <laughs> and he says he was much more restrained than in Star Trek VI. Oh, oh no, that's sad. <laughs> I mean, I love Star Trek VI, and he, like he's chewing the scenery. It's great, and... I have the uh, the Klingon bird of prey like figure that you can press and it plays Christopher Plummer saying Shakespeare lines from <laughs> Star Trek VI, <laughs> and like uh, many of them are totally out of context um, from the the source material. They just sound good in the moment, but um, it's delightful. I mean, I thought I also thought the somewhat more restrained version was still very good. Well, we'll put it in the show notes so people can enjoy. And thanks to our Twitter follower for for highlighting that for us we appreciate it yeah there's also just a lot of parallels in star trek 6 with hamlet particularly i mean obviously the title of the movie but mark houlihan who is another person i read um wrote about like how the plot revolves around the death of a father who was also the head of state those who are left behind kind of find them in hamlet's position where they have to grieve the departed and also figure out revenge and that there is um, kind of the same anxiety over the quality of existence and like what is coming next for everyone. And he does quote Hamlet. He does. He does indeed. Very ponderously. I enjoyed it. I find that scene really interesting when he starts off and he says to the undiscovered country, because within the context of this, of the Hamlet talking, the undiscovered country is death. Yeah. And so then everybody, all the humans at the table turn and look at him like, what are you talking about? How? Uh? And he says, the future. And I really find that fascinating because death is our future. Mm-hmm. And, but as we tend to try and not deal with our own mortality, we try to avoid it. Yeah. And, but the Klingons death is the next day. And if they, you know, today is a good day to die is a Klingon thing, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, I, so I find him that fascinating the way he starts off that speech and it's such a Klingon, it is Mm -hmm. such a Klingon thing for him to say, even though he's using these human words. Yeah. And when Kirk comes back to it about, you know, your father called the future, the undiscovered country. And it says people can be very scared of change or be very afraid of change. Yeah, like for Klingons, you can imagine that death is less scary than change, for sure. And maybe for some humans, too. Maybe the humans that were part of that plot 
were less afraid of dying than they were about like this future peace treaty with these people that had been their sworn enemies. Have we ever heard of, I have to imagine they've happened, but has anyone ever heard of anybody translating play Shakespearean plays into Klingon and then performing them? Yes. Do tell, Jared. Tell me more. Well, I mean, you can get the translation of the Klingon Hamlet, like it was published. And then there's 100% companies that put it on. Just like there's also a um, Klingon company that does a production of A Christmas Carol in Klingon, I believe. Nice. Yes. Sorry. uh, There's a St. Paul Theater Company that staged a Star Trek It's a Wonderful Life mashup performed in Klingon. And they also had previously done the Klingon Christmas Carol. So that might be the company that I'm thinking of. And there may be more than one, but those were the ones that I was thinking of off the top of my head. Nice. Well, I hope someday I get to go see Hamlet in the original Klingon. Oh my gosh. Okay. I found another one. This is great. So there's the Washington Shakespeare Company in DC did uh, scenes from Hamlet, Julius Caesar, and Much Do About Nothing in Klingon in 2010. And they also performed the English version. So they did both. And then the they're bringing, they brought back a new event that was called Avant Bard. <laughs> All right. I would definitely go and watch that. Yeah, absolutely. And then they uh, did uh, basically a version of The Wrath of Khan in, in Klingon. So yeah. Very cool. I'm very down with everyone doing more more of that and i think some people i think you can see some of the performances or at least clips on youtube excellent so one of the other besides the klingons the other like big one i think that we have to talk about is data Mm -hmm. and how often data is either referencing shakespeare or someone is quoting Shakespeare to him, or he's performing it. And the whole thing is through the lens of Data learning how to become human, which is how he handles most art and why he does painting and plays the violin and such. And I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, about this idea of the universality of Shakespeare and the themes of Shakespeare and how Shakespeare is a way to explore humanity and so is science fiction and so is data so kind of go together like pb and j i'd say yeah i think i think data can also operate as like one of those fools those shakespearean fools who's this relative innocent who reflects humanity to us but then also he himself is trying to get more and more human and i love how picard is trying to be like a mentor to him with doing it through performance and really there is such a difference performing Shakespeare than reading Shakespeare. I, nobody should read Shakespeare except for the actors memorizing their lines. (laughs) Everyone should experience Shakespeare on the stage. And then when you get the chance to perform it, you have to dig into those texts because it's almost a foreign language. And so you have to really research the words that you're saying and the poetry helps you know the meaning and you you dig into all of that and you so you get these words deep into your soul this is the thing that i feel sad about data's efforts on the holodeck is he's always doing them alone Mm -hmm. and acting is so much more fun and so much more profound for me when you're doing it with someone on stage and you're looking into their eyes and you say your line 
and then they say, they talk back to you and they give you something different. And then you respond to that. And it's this living pretending it, it's so, it's such a different experience performing versus reading it and doing it with an audience there with you. And you get to feel when they're really listening to you and they're involved, you can tell by the way people are breathing in the room. And you can tell that means I've performed in smaller spaces (laughs) rather than very large spaces. But the audience interaction that happens, Shakespeare needs to be performed. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And this, okay. So this reminds me, I came across a really fun Reddit question when I was doing this research. Does Data just do private holodeck performances for Picard? Been binging TNG and I'm noticing small recurring scenes. And it ends up, the question ends, is Data just doing the scene for Picard? Is he rehearsing for a larger performance and wants Picard's feedback? And why does Picard keep interrupting him instead of letting him finish the scene? That's just rude. (laughs) I agree 100% with all of that. I do think Data is preparing for a performance because if I remember correctly, he does mention I'm going to be performing this. But again, it goes back to some comments that were made earlier about how it's just for this small group of people. And it seems to be this very intellectual sort of an exercise as opposed to this emotional gut-wrenching or absolutely hilarious production. Side note, one of the funniest shows I ever did was a version of Mackers. I'm just Mm -hmm. superstitious enough. I don't like saying the full name of the play. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was hilarious where we did it for kids and in half an hour and just the, the witches were sock puppets and we still got the whole story out. The kids were introduced to this, this great idea, but it was hilarious. Performance is, performance is everything. Mm -hmm. I I think you're completely right, Brooke, because it's not just about Shakespeare. It's also all poetry. Poetry is words, yes. But it's also about the sound of the words and how the words kind of go together. That's why Shakespeare so often wrote an iambic pentameter. It's about a Mm -hmm. beat. Yeah. And it's about Mm -hmm. how the words sound against each other. That's why alliteration is a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're definitely not getting the full experience of any kind of poetry especially Shakespeare, if you're not speaking it aloud. And that's why your high school teacher humiliated you and made you try and read Shakespeare out loud in front of your entire class because it just doesn't work otherwise. Well, and it's very funny because people will ask, how do you memorize all of that stuff? And for me, memorizing Shakespeare word for word is a whole lot easier than memorizing Mm -hmm. modern text word for word precisely because of the poetry. Yep. Mm -hmm. But like, is Data doing a produ- or performance just of him doing monologues because he could at least be rehearsing with the rest of the cast you have to imagine yeah. he's not like he's not insecure about it at this point no but he's missing something by not actually rehearsing with other people mm-hmm. and i can't even articulate exactly what it is that he's missing but he is totally missing no i think i can We define and learn about who we are when we're in relationships with other people. Yeah. In the episode, The Defector, Data is performing from Henry V at the beginning of the episode. And he says basically that he has been studying great performances like Laurence Olivier in order to figure out how to do this right. And Picard says, Data, you're here to learn about the human condition, and there is no better way of doing that than by embracing Shakespeare. But you must discover it through your own performance, not by imitating others. 
like if he wants to break away from imitating others, then doing his rehearsal with a group and seeing them work on their own performances, a group of amateurs, I think is going to be a better way to do that than just working with Picard. 100% agree. You're you're right. I like to think that because we have seen that Crusher directs plays on the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So I like to think that she is also directing him in Shakespeare and he's just trying to get better at it on his own before he shows her his performance. And then she, as an excellent director, will start drawing him into the cast and, and showing him how to play off other actors. That's let's let's just let's just hope that that was happening off screen. I 100% hope that too, because you always have to, as an actor, you always have to do your own homework on your own before you jump in with everybody else, or else you're not playing fair with everybody else. I also think it's interesting that another one of the probably most apropos Shakespeare references in regard to data is in Measure of the Man, which is an episode entirely about whether or not data is a person. And discussing his personhood and humanity and it's put on trial, they do specifically quote Shakespeare in that episode and Maddox basically says to him, do you even understand what this means? Is it just words to you? And I don't like that guy. (laughs) There's plenty of people that if you you gave them Shakespeare, it would take them time to understand it. That doesn't make Mm -hmm. them not a person. Yeah, and mm-hmm. also I bet Data does understand, and he he works hard. He works harder than anybody else to try and find his personhood because he's not sure he has it. So the journey is the most important part, and uh, this Maddox guy doesn't understand any of that, and he sucks. So yeah, he totally does. He's but he's doing something that I think a lot of authors tend to do when they're writing Shakespeare and science fiction. They use Shakespeare as a test of humanity. Mm-hmm. But I 100% agree with you that anybody just reading the words, it might take them a long time to try and get to the meaning of it. And so that doesn't mean that they're not human. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think Star Trek reinforces the idea that, you know, and we, we talked about like, there are these themes that we consider kind of basic human themes in Shakespeare. And a lot of them also didn't he didn't invent these like he draw them drew a lot of them from greek and roman mythology and mm-hmm. from like historical events around us so they're also not things that just like one guy invented but he picked up on these themes that were around and some way to um in some cases he told them way better than anyone else had ever done so i think that it there is a bit of that you know kind of associating that there's almost like a bit of a Shakespeare test you have to pass before you're fully human, but that I think ultimately like data to us passes it just in, in like trying to understand it, I think is maybe the more essential thing that Trek wants people to do. I just don't like the idea of like, there's some static meaning that you understand and then that's it. Exactly. That's not what Shakespeare or any kind of art is about. Like, think of stuff that you read as a kid and then you read again 30 years later. It changed. Yep. It changed because you changed. So, like, whenever you are interacting with art in any way, it's it's a partnership between you and the creator. Um, you're bringing stuff that to the table when you're interpreting what their words mean. So... Uh, it's the idea that it's like, yeah, check this box, and this is what the meaning is, is just fully 
not accurate anyway. Does Does Bruce Maddox even understand how he's failing his own test right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Exactly. I will say that in in our very second episode, Data puts his own spin on Shakespeare when he says, "If you prick me, do I not leak?" <laughs> yeah. See, he 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 passed the ultimate Shakespeare test, and that he took Shakespeare and he played with it, and he changed the meaning around, and then he applied it to himself in a funny way. Yeah, he went. There is a play that is about well, it one of the pieces of the Merchant of Venice is person who considers himself oppressed, and I would argue is. I agreed. I think he is oppressed. And uh, Data is like, hey, I'm kind of oppressed and maybe I'm drunk right now. And that's what made let me be able to say this. But he puts his own spin on it, says I'm like this character who isn't treated the same as everyone else and that people see as less than human. And yeah, so agree. I think he passes the test in that very episode. Before Maddox even came about, Data had already passed his stupid Shakespeare test. Yes, and that's in The Naked Now for reference. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, that's kind of interesting is that we're talking about performance and we're talking about imitation. Data drops his general speech patterns when he's performing and specifically when he's performing it and he's playing Prospero in Emergence. Like he do- he doesn't do his regular cadence and he changes it up to perform. And I find that really interesting. Totally. And that's also a testament to some of Brent Spiner's acting skills to be able to be playing a character who's playing a character and then switch back to the base character. That's That takes a bit of skill and some planning. Indeed. But I, I, I do agree that when you're given lines and blocking and you're this, you're told this is what you have to do, with those kinds of limitations. And then you have to memorize that. And then you practice it. It gives you a chance to work out how to be in a different way than you are in your real life in a safe way. And it's one of those reasons why I enjoy theater in general as a way to do therapy. It's cheaper than therapy to go and do a play and you get to practice with those given circumstances what to do. And so then just like with any skill, you can then apply it in your real life later on as you've practiced and learned it. I do want to shout out. So Andy, you had talked earlier about how certainly in earlier Star Trek, we don't necessarily see references to the the naughty bits of Star Trek. (laughs) Jen on Twitter says, I love Lower Decks keeping the spirit of Shakespeare and Trek alive as only they could by giving an app the body title Where Pleasant Fountains Lie. Besides the <laughs> glorious lewdness of the phrase, the poem Venus and Adonis is definitely in the Lower Decks of Shakespearean works. Um, and it is so great. If um, The like full sentence from that poem is graze on my lips and if those hills be dry stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie excellent excellent 10 out of 10 no notes (laughs) (laughs) it's very lower decks and it also kind of pokes fun at the that whole and the thing that one of the scholars uh was pointing out about the use of of Star Trek to signal high culture to like kind of lend itself legitimacy or as Brooke you said like sometimes they're using it to make themselves sound smart and uh yeah goes out like 
Trek can also work to signify more like low culture in quotes or like populist culture. Yeah. And then one thing that I like about that too, is that it just goes to show that Shakespearean references in Star Trek aren't going anywhere. We're going to nope. see them <laughs> continuing on in the new series. Um, and we still see more in Picard and just in general, the Shakespearean mythos is still going to be quite foundational to Star Trek, I think. Yeah, it's no good. It was in Star Trek Beyond. I, I cheered when they we quoted Shakespeare in Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> yeah. You know, I haven't really been watching Strange New Worlds for like direct references, but I feel like there also are just some themes that we also see in common there. I mean, in in some ways, actually, I mean, it's not a direct analogy to Mackers, but the idea of like seeing your own future and having that affect what you, what decisions you make to me is reminiscent of that. Absolutely. But Pike is, is doing the opposite of, of Mackers and trying to be better because he saw it. Not, not give into the dark side of the force. Oh, wait, wrong, wrong, wrong franchise. <laughs> we support franchise diversity. <laughs> Well, were there any other scenes or characters or tropes or themes that you want that we um, want to talk about a little bit more before we wrap up? I, I would say that if anybody listening has any ideas for the Shakespeare and Star Trek panel, uh, send them along because I hope we'll be able to continue doing that. We try to have fun at that panel rather than being all brainy about things. We try to play games and have fun. Nice. I, I did want to mention, uh, Craig on Facebook pointed out that in The Defector, that's where Data's using Henry V at the beginning, that it also ties in perfectly with the rest of the episode. And so sometimes they use the example from Shakespeare that they're quoting, similar to using Hamlet in Undiscovered Country, to like point out some of the themes that they're drawing on in the other story or the main story of the episode. It's like how in um, high school teen dramas, whatever they're studying in English class has a direct uh, <laughs> reference to whatever teenage problems they're having. And it's just somewhat uh, perfect <laughs> correlation. That's that's exactly how I think of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also wanted to mention in uh, Cat's Paw, it's not just the witches that make it kind of Macbeth-like. Um, but you also have Sylvia, who is kind of a corrupting woman who is trying to lure Kirk into like her own designs, um, which is only one interpretation of Macbeth, but I would say one that was very prominent at the time that the episode was made. Nice. All right. Well, I think that there's a lot more we could talk about <laughs> when it comes to uh, Shakespeare and Star Trek, but unfortunately, uh, we only have an hour, so I think we have to wrap things up a little bit. So, Jera, where can people find you if they want to talk more about uh, the play? The play is the thing, isn't it? Um, mm. You can find me at Jera Penguin on Twitter. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin, and I'm also at TrekkieFeminist.com, where I am currently looking at the results of the Bechdel-Wallace test for new Star Trek. So I just, I posted uh, Discovery and Picard, and I have yet to finish Strange New Worlds, but it should be up soon. Excellent. And Brooke, when people want to send you ideas for the Shakespeare and Trek panel at Vegas, where should they send them? 
You know, I'm not much on social media nowadays, so uh, is it okay if I give my email address? Sure, if you don't mind a bunch of weird randos from our show emailing you about Shakespeare. It's, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tanaquil1558. That's T-A-N-A-Q-U-I-L-L-1558. As So Tanaquil's the fairy queen. So Tanaquil1558 at yahoo.com. Awesome. Thanks so much. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com, email us at crew at womenatwarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at womenatwarp. Thanks so much for listening.